Hello, and thank you for being here today. I'm hoping that we'll be able to finish one and a half chapters in this segment because chapter eight coming up is quite short um, and chapter nine is a little bit longer. So we'll be reading chapters eight and half of chapter nine in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chapter eight. The Romilies ran to women of strong personalities. The Nolans ran to weak and talented men. Johnny's family was dying out. The Nolan men grew handsomer, weaker, and more beguiling with each generation. They had a way of falling in love, but of ducking marriage. That was the main reason why they were dying out. Ruthie Nolan had come from Ireland with her handsome young husband soon after their marriage. They had four sons born a year apart. Then Mickey died at 30 and Ruthie carried on. She managed to get Andy, Georgie, Frankie, and Johnny through the sixth grade. As each boy reached the age of 12, he had to leave school to go out to earn a few pennies. The boys grew up handsome, able to play music, to dance, and to sing, and with all the girls crazy for them. Though the Nolans lived in the shabbiest house in Irish town, the boys were the dressiest in the neighborhood. The ironing board was kept set up in the kitchen. One or the other was always pressing pants, smoothing out a tie, or ironing a shirt. They were the pride of shantytown, the tall, blonde, good-looking Nolan lads. They had quick feet in shoes that were kept highly polished. Their trousers hung just so and their hats sat jauntily on their head. But they were all dead before they were 35. All dead, and of the four, only Johnny left children. Andy was the eldest and the handsomest. He had red gold, wavy hair, and finely molded features. He had consumption, too. He was engaged to a girl named Francie Mullaney. They kept putting off the marriage, waiting for him to get better, only he never did get better. The Nolan boys were singing waiters. They had been the Nolan Quartet until Andy got too sick to work. They became the Nolan Trio then. They didn't earn much and spent most of that on liquor and horse racing bets. When Andy took to his bed for the last time, the boys bought him a genuine swans swans down pillow that cost $7. They wanted him to have a luxury before he died. Andy thought it was a wonderful pillow. Andy used it two days. Then there was a last great gush of blood which stained the fine new pillow a rusty brown, and Andy died. His mother keened over the body for three days. Francie Mullaney made a vow that she would never marry. The three remaining Nolan boys swore that they would never leave their mother. Six months later, Johnny married Katie. Ruthie hated Katie. She had hoped to keep all of her fine boys home with her until she or they died, 
So far, all had avoided marriage. But that girl, that girl, Katie Romilly, she did it. Ruthie was sure that Johnny had been tricked into marriage. Georgie and Frankie liked Katie, but thought it was a dirty trick for Johnny to skip out and leave them to take care of their mother. They made the best of it, however. They looked around for a wedding present and decided to give Katie the fine pillow they had bought for Andy and which he had used so briefly. The mother sewed a new ticking over it to hide the ugly stain that had been the past part of Andy's life. This pillow thus passed on to Johnny and Katie. It was considered too good for ordinary use and only brought out when one of them was sick. Francie called it the sick pillow. Neither Katie nor Francie knew that it had been a death pillow. About a year after Johnny's marriage, Frankie, who many thought even handsomer than Andy, wavered home after a drinking party one night and stumbled over some taut wire that a bucolic Brooklynite had strung around a square foot of grass before his house stoop. The wire was held up by sharp little sticks. As Frankie stumbled, one of the sticks pierced his stomach. He got up somehow and went home. He died during the night. He died alone and without the priest's last absolution for all of his sins. For the rest of her days, his mother had a mass said once a month for the repose of his soul, which she knew wandered about in purgatory. In little more than a year, Ruthie Nolan had lost three sons, two by death and one by marriage. She grieved for the three. Georgie, who never left her, died three years later when he was 28. Johnny, 23, was the only Nolan boy left at the time. These were the Nolan boys. All died young. All died sudden or violent deaths brought on by their own recklessness or their own bad way of living. Johnny was the only one who lived past his 30th birthday. And the child, Francie Nolan, was of all the Romilies and all the Nolans. She had the violent weaknesses and passions for beauty of the Shanty Nolans. She was a mosaic of her grandmother Romley's mysticism, her tale-telling, her great belief in everything, and her compassion for the weak ones. She had a lot of her grandfather Romley's cruel will. She had some of her Aunt Evie's talent for mimicking, some of Ruthie Nolan's possessiveness. She had Aunt Sissy's love for life and her love for children. She had Johnny's sentimentality without his good looks. She had all of Katie's soft ways and only half of the invisible steel of Katie. She was made up of all of these good and these bad things. She was made up of more, too. She was the books she read in the library. She was the flower in the brown bowl. Part of her life was made from the tree growing rankly in the yard. She was the bitter quarrels she had with her brother, whom she loved dearly. She was Katie's secret, despairing weeping. She was the shame of her father, staggering home drunk. 
She was all of these things, and of something more that did not come from the Romilies nor the Nolans. The reading, the observing, the living from day to day. It was something that had been born into her, and her only, the something different from anyone else in the two families. It was what God, or whatever his equivalent, puts into each soul that is given life. The one different thing, such as that which, makes no two fingerprints on the face of the earth alike. I love that. Chapter 9 Johnny and Katie were married and went to live on a quiet side street in Williamsburg called Bogart Street. Johnny chose the street because its name had a thrilling dark sound. They were very happy there the first year of their marriage. Katie had married Johnny because she liked the way he sang and danced and dressed. Woman-like, she set about changing all those things in him after marriage. She persuaded him to give up the singing waiter business. He did so since he was in love and anxious to please her. They got a job together, taking care of a public school, and they loved it. Their day started when the rest of the world went to bed. After supper, Katie put on her black coat with the big Lego mutton sleeves, lavishly trimmed with braid, her last loot from the factory, and threw a cherry wool fascinator over her head, a newbie, she called it, and she and Johnny set off for work. The school was old and small and warm. They looked forward to spending the night there. They walked arm in arm, he in his patent leather dancing shoes, and her in her high-laced kid boots. Sometimes, when the night was frosty and full of stars, they ran a little, skipped a little, and laughed a lot. They felt very important using their private key to get into the school. The school was their world for a night. They played games while they worked. Johnny sat at one of the desks, and Katie pretended she was a teacher. They wrote messages to each other on the blackboards. They pulled down the maps, which rolled up like shades, and pointed out foreign countries with the rubber-tipped pointer. They were filled with wonder at the thought of strange lands and unknown languages. He was 19, and she was 17. They liked best to clean the assembly room. Johnny dusted the piano and while doing so, ran his fingers over the keys. He picked out some chords. Katie sat in the front row and asked him to sing. He sang to her sentimental songs of the time. She may have seen better days or I'm wearing my heart away for you. People living nearby would be coaxed out of their midnight sleep by the singing. They'd lie in their warm beds, listening drowsily, and murmur to each other, That feller, whoever he is, is losing time. He's losing time. He ought to be in a show. Sometimes, Johnny went into one of his dances on the little platform that he pretended was a stage. He was so graceful and handsome, so loving, so full of the grandness of just living, that Katie, watching him, thought she would die of being happy. 
At two, they went into the teacher's lunchroom, where there was a gas plate. They made coffee. They kept a can of condensed milk in the cupboard. They enjoyed the boiling hot coffee, which filled the room with a wonderful smell. Their rye bread and bologna sandwiches tasted good. Sometimes after supper, they'd go into the teacher's restroom, where there was a chintz-covered couch, and lie there for a while with their arms about each other. They emptied the waste baskets last thing, and Katie salvaged the longer bits of discarded chalk and the pencils that were not too stubby. She took them home and saved them in a box. Later, when Francie was growing up, she felt very rich having so much chalk and so many pencils to use. There we go. At dawn, they left the school scrubbed, shiny, warm, and ready for the daytime janitor. They walked home watching the stars fade from the sky. They passed the bakers where the smell of freshly baked rolls came up to them through the baking room in the basement. Johnny ran down and bought a nickel's worth of buns hot from the oven. Arriving home, they had a breakfast of hot coffee and warm sweet buns. Then Johnny ran out and got the morning American and read the news to her with running comments while she cleaned up their rooms. At noon, they had a hot dinner of pot roast and noodles or something good like that. After dinner, they slept until it was time to get up for work. They earned $50 a month, which was good pay for people of their class in those days. They lived comfortably and it was a good life. They had happy and full of small adventures. And they were so young and loved each other so much. In a few months, to their innocent amazement and consternation, Katie found out that she was pregnant. She told Johnny that she was that way. Johnny was bewildered and confused at first. He didn't want her to work at the school. She told him that she had been that way for quite a while without being sure and had been working and had not suffered. When she convinced him that it was good for her to work, he gave in. She continued working until she got too unwieldy to dust under the desks. Soon she could do little more than go along with him for company and lie on the gay couch no longer used for lovemaking. He did all the work now. At two in the morning, he made clumsy sandwiches and overboiled coffee for her. They were still very happy, although Johnny was getting more and more worried as the time wore on. Towards the end of a frosty December night, her pains started. She lay on the couch, holding them back, not wanting to tell Johnny until the work was finished. On the way home, there was a tearing pain that she couldn't keep back. She moaned, and Johnny knew the baby was on the way. He got her home and put her to bed without undressing her and covered her warmly. He ran down the block to Miss Gindler, the midwife, and begged her to hurry. That good woman drove him crazy by taking her time. She had to take dozens of curlers out of her hair. She couldn't find her teeth and refused to officiate without them. Johnny helped her search and they found them at last in a glass of water on the ledge outside the window. 
the water had frozen around the teeth and they had to be thawed before she could put them in. That done, she had to go about making a charm out of a piece of blessed palm taken from the altar on Palm Sunday. To this, she added a medal of the Blessed Mother, a small blue bird feather, a broken blade from a pen knife, and a sprig of some herb. These things were tied together with a bit of dirty string from the corset of a woman who had given birth to twins after only ten minutes of labor. She sprinkled the whole business with holy water that was supposed to have come from a well in Jerusalem from which it was said that Jesus had once quenched his thirst. She explained to the frantic boy that this charm would cut the pains and assure him of a fine, well-born baby. Lastly, she grabbed her crocodile satchel, familiar to everyone in the neighborhood and believed by all the youngsters to be the satchel in which they had been delivered, kicking to their mothers, and she was ready to go. Katie was screaming in pain when they got to her. The flat was filled with neighbor women who stood around praying and reminiscing about their own childbed experiences. When I had my Vincent, said one, I, I was even smaller than her, said another, and when they didn't expect me to come through it, proudly declared a third, but they welcomed the midwife and shooed Johnny out of the place. He sat on the stoop and trembled each time Katie cried out. He was confused. It had happened so suddenly. It was now seven in the morning. Her screams kept coming to him even though, the, even though the windows were closed. Men passed on their way to work, looked at the window from behind which the screams were coming, and then looked at Johnny huddled on the stoop, and a somber look came over their faces. Katie was in labor all that day, and there was nothing that Johnny could do. Nothing that he could do. Towards night, he couldn't stand it any longer. He went to his mother's house for comforting. When he told her that Katie was having a baby, she nearly raised the roof with her lamentations. Now she's got you good, she wailed. You'll never be able to come back to me. She would not be consoled. Johnny hunted up his brother, Georgie, who was working a dance. He sat drinking, waiting for Georgie to finish, forgetting that he was supposed to be at the school. When Georgie was free for the night, they went to several all-night saloons, had a drink or two at each place, and told everybody what Johnny was going through. The men listened sympathetically, treated Johnny to drinks, and assured him that they had been through the same mill. Towards dawn, the boys went to their brother's house, where Johnny fell into a troubled sleep. At nine, he woke up with a feeling of coming trouble. He remembered Katie and, too late, he remembered the school. He washed and dressed and started for home. He passed a fruit stand which displayed avocados. He bought two for Katie. He had no way of knowing that during the night, his wife, in great pain and after nearly 24 hours of labor, gave bloody birth to a fragile baby girl. The only notable thing about the birth was that the infant was born with a cowl, which was supposed to indicate that the child was set apart to do great things in the world. The midwife surreptitiously confiscated the cowl, 
and later sold it to a sailor from the Brooklyn Navy Yard for $2. Whoever wore the cowl would never die by drowning, it was said. The sailor wore it in a flannel bag around his neck. While he drank and slept the night away, Johnny did not know that the night had turned cold and the school fires, which he was supposed to tend, had gone out and the water pipes had burst and flooded the school basement and the first floor. When he got home, he found Katie lying in the dark bedroom. The baby was beside her on Andy's pillow. The flat was scrupulously clean. The neighbor women had attended to that. There was a faint odor of carbolic acid mixed with menin's talcum powder. The midwife had gone after saying, that will be five dollars and your husband knows where I live. She left and Katie turned her face to the wall and tried not to cry. During the night, she assured herself that Johnny was working at the school. She had hoped that he would run home for a moment during the two o'clock eating period. Now it was late morning and he should be home. Maybe he had gone to his mother's to snatch some sleep after the night's work. She made herself believe that no matter what Johnny was doing, it was all right and that his explanation would set her mind at ease. Soon after the midwife left, Evie came over. A neighbor's boy had been sent for her. Evie brought along some sweet butter and a package of soda crackers and made tea. It tasted so good to Katie. Evie examined the baby and thought it didn't look like much, but she said nothing to Katie. When Johnny got home, Evie started to lecture him, but when she saw how pale and frightened he looked, and when she considered his age, just 20 years old, she choked up inside, kissed his cheek, told him not to worry, and made fresh coffee for him. Johnny hardly looked at the baby. Still clutching the avocados, he knelt by Katie's bed and sobbed out his fear and worry. Katie cried with him. During the night, she had wanted him with her. Now she wished she could have had the baby secretly and gone away somewhere, and when it was over, come back and tell him that everything was fine. She had had the pain. It had been like being boiled alive in scalding oil and not being able to die and get free of it. She had had the pain. Dear God, wasn't that enough? Why did he have to suffer? He wasn't put together for suffering, but she was. She had born a child but two hours ago. She was so weak, she couldn't lift her head an inch from the pillow, yet it was she who comforted him and told him not to worry, that she would take care of him. Johnny began to feel better. He told her that after all, it was nothing, that he had learned that a lot of husbands had been through the mill. I've been through the mill now too, he said, and now I'm a man. He made a big fuss over the baby then. At his suggestion, Katie agreed to name her Francie, after the girl, Francie Mullaney, who had been married to his brother, Andy. They thought it would help to mend her broken heart if she were made godmother. The child would have the name she would have carried had Andy lived, Francie Nolan. He fixed the avocados with sweet oil and pickled vinegar and brought the salad into Katie. She was disappointed at the flat taste. 
Johnny said you had to get used to it like olives. For his sake, and because she was touched by his thinking of her, Katie ate the salad. Evie was urged to try some. She did, and said she'd sooner have tomatoes. While Johnny was in the kitchen drinking coffee, a boy came from the school with a note from the principal which said that Johnny was fired because of neglect. He was told to come around and get what money was due him. The note ended by telling Johnny not to ask for a recommendation. Johnny's face got pale as he read it. He gave the kid a nickel for bringing the note and a message saying he would be around. He destroyed the note and said nothing about it to Katie. Johnny saw the principal and tried to explain. The principal told Johnny that since he knew the baby was coming, he should have been more careful about his job. As a kindly afterthought, he told the boy that he wouldn't have to pay the damage caused by the burst pipes. The Board of Education would see to that. Johnny thanked him. The principal paid him from his own pocket after Johnny had signed a voucher, turning over the coming paycheck to the principal. All in all, the principal did the best he could according to the way he saw things. Johnny paid the midwife and gave the landlord the next month's rent. He got a little frightened when he realized that now there was a baby and that Katie wouldn't be strong enough to do much for quite some time and that they were out of a job. He consoled himself finally with the thought that the rent was paid and that they were safe for 30 days. Surely something would turn up in that time. In the afternoon, he walked over to tell Mary Romilly about the new baby. On the way there, he stopped at the rubber factory and asked for Sissy's foreman. He asked the man to tell her about the baby and would she stop over after work. The foreman said he would, winked, poked Johnny in the ribs and said, good for you, Mac. Johnny grinned and gave him 10 cents with instructions. Buy a good cigar and smoke it on me. I'll do that, Mac, promised the foreman. He pumped Johnny's hand again and promised to tell Sissy. Mary Romilly wept when she heard the news. The poor child, the poor little one, she lamented. Born into this world of sorrow, born for suffering and hardship. Aye, there'll be a little happiness, but more of hard work. Aye, aye. Johnny was all for telling Thomas Romley, but Mary begged him not to just yet. Thomas hated Johnny Nolan because he was Irish. He hated the Germans, he hated the Americans, he hated the Russians, but he just couldn't stand the Irish. He was fiercely racial in spite of his stupendous hatred of his race, and he had a theory that marriage between two of alien races would result in mongrel children. What would I get if I mated a canary with a crow, was his argument.